0: Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to Ponder, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. There is one obvious bright spot within the first eight verses of Genesis 6, and that is the person of Noah. The Bible tells us that the world was so corrupt that, quote, God regretted having made man. A thought we dealt with in the sermon on Sunday, so I'll leave it alone here. Nevertheless, the wickedness of the world was incredibly exhaustive and pervasive, and yet there was one man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord in verse 6. His name was Noah. The Bible doesn't leave us hanging on the issue of why Noah found favor. In fact, as we read on into the chapter, we are confronted with the reality that Noah was a, quote, righteous man, according to verse 9. God loved Noah because Noah was righteous. But what does that even mean? How do we know that Noah was righteous? The evidence of a righteous standing before God is always fleshed out in righteous living. And that righteous living is unveiled in the very final verse of chapter 6 when we read that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If I could state the theme of this week's devotion simply, it would be this. Noah was justified by faith alone. This is the only way any person can be deemed righteous in God's eyes. And yet his faith was not solely theoretical. It was demonstrated by his actions. Stated differently, the truly righteous are those who believe, and those who believe demonstrate their belief with obedient living. As we walk through this week's devotions, I want to begin with the statement. Noah was righteous because Noah loved God supremely. Now, Genesis 6 doesn't explicitly say Noah loved God, but it does demonstrate Noah's love for God, and the rest of the scripture helps us connect the dots. When the Bible says that Noah did all that God commanded, the Bible is saying that Noah obeyed out of a loving heart, and the way we know this, in part, is through verses like 1 John 5. Today's devotional verse says this, "...for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments." True obedience flows from a heart that loves God above all things. Noah's love for God is manifest in his obedience, and his obedience flows from a heart that was righteous in God's eyes, and a heart that is righteous in God's eyes is not a sinless heart, but a believing heart. Noah's faith originated in a heart that loved God, and the heart that loves God is willing to follow God through all of life's difficulties, and we should assume that Noah had many difficulties. It has been speculated that Noah received all kinds of mockery and resistance from the world around him. While this isn't explicit in the text, it stands to reason that a world full of wicked people who reject God would in fact make fun of one man who loved and obeyed God. Additionally, when one considers the reality that Noah was building a massive boat that presumably was obvious to his neighbors and those passing through, it becomes fairly clear that this man did not fit in with his peers. In all these things, Noah forsook the acclaim and acceptance of the sinful world in order to obey God, because he loved God more than he loved anything that this world could offer him. And this is the very definition of a righteous man. Point to Ponder, February 13th, Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. My goal today is to further cement in our minds the biblical teaching that connects faith and obedience. As is almost always the case, there are two ditches that we can fall into as it relates to how faith and works cooperate. The first ditch is legalism. This view diminishes the foundational need of faith and instead teaches that we can nurture or even create faith by our works. This is the classic formulation of all false religions that I'm aware of, which encourages man to do the right thing and tells us that God will reward us with subsequent salvific blessings. The other ditch is called antinomianism. That is an admittedly big and somewhat bulky word. The prefix anti means against, and the root word nomos is a Latin term that means law. Simply stated, antinomians believe that the Christian life is totally unencumbered or influenced by the law. They live as if faith which saves has no bearing on an obedient lifestyle. Stated differently, antinomians believe you get to heaven by faith, even if that faith doesn't change a lifestyle that looks like the devil. In the middle is the biblical teaching on justification. While it is true that we believe and we are justified by faith alone, we further believe that those who are justified by faith will demonstrate their faith in their actions. Today's passage teaches this point quite clearly. Three things we should see in this text. First, salvation is available to all men. While it is true that Noah was the only righteous man in his generation, it is equally true that the gospel call of salvation is given to the world. Paul makes a somewhat controversial statement in his day when he reminds his readers that he has been given grace to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. Second, we should see that Paul's call was one of obedience. The gospel call is a call to follow Christ. There is no subset of Christian who is saved by faith without works. Some might think that Paul is teaching a works-based righteousness, but this is to miss the point that works are not the ground of our salvation, meaning the reason we are saved, but they are the fruit of our salvation, meaning the natural and consistent result of our salvation. You will not stand before the Lord one day and point to your actions as the reason for your entry into heaven, but you should be able to refer to your actions as a demonstration or evidence that you have faith which saves, and that it was genuinely present and vibrant. Finally, Paul ties this in a neat bow for us by stating what we have been trying to explain nicely, saying, "...to the obedience that comes from faith." Do you see the connection? Obedience is the result of faith. Conversely, faith always leads to obedience, and this is how we can look at Noah's life and see his faith. Folks, faith should not be the kind of thing that is hidden from the world. If you claim saving faith today, those around you should be able to substantiate your claim with your actions. Obedience flows from faith, it did with Noah, and it continues to do so with each individual who claims to have faith in Christ alone. Point to Ponder, February 14th, Psalm Chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Some people struggle with the idea that God would obliterate all of mankind except for a very few individuals and in one nuclear family. This image of a God full of wrath is inconsistent with the understanding that many have of a kind, loving, benevolent deity. My hope for our devotion today and tomorrow is to try to help us understand how outrageous and untenable an all-accepting, totally passive God truly is. As we begin to try to navigate these waters, I must admit that what strikes me often about the conversation regarding God's judgment is how little consideration is given to the depth and filth of man's sin. It seems like God is expected to never punish anything, and that man is always the victim in mankind's collective minds. One way that we can overcome this preconceived idea, therefore, is to really consider how terrible the heart of man became and continues to be after the fall. As we have tried to point out from the pulpit on numerous occasions, within one generation some of the most egregious sins in the universe are already present amongst mankind. The trajectory of the story is stark, as the world goes from perfection to sinful chaos in just a few short years. As we arrive at the story of Noah, we read that the entire world is guilty before God. Indeed, the Bible paints a picture of mankind that is quite bleak, stating that mankind became so horrifically sinful that God, quote, regretted that he even made his image bearers. We dealt with the meaning of the word regret in the sermon, so I would encourage you to go back and listen if that idea gives you heartburn. The Flood was God's direct response to man's sin as a consequence for the individual and collective depravity of civilization, and the rest of the Bible shows us that while the Flood wiped out individual sinners, it did nothing to deal with the root cause of depravity in man's hearts. Consequently, the Bible begins to unfold for us in the Flood account what is a consistent message on the topic of man's sin. The biblical teaching on the topic can be summarized this way. Man is far more sinful than any of us would dare to imagine. Not only do our actions demonstrate the wickedness of our hearts, our very thoughts and intentions are totally and uniformly evil from our birth. Notice in our passage today the universal language of Psalm 14. Verse 3 says, They all have turned aside. There is none that does good. These words are not an exaggeration, they're not hyperbole, nor are they intended to be so. The simple reading of the text is clear. Man is corrupt to the core. While sinfulness manifests itself in many ways, the chief problem with man is his sin is that nobody seeks God. Verse 2 says that God looks for those who would seek him, and he finds no one. The very one who made all things and rules all things and blesses mankind with all things is rejected uniformly by his creation in pursuit of rebellious pleasures and renown. Not only has man walked away from God, man opposes God at every turn, seeking to construct his own throne and call his own shots. These are the realities at play in the world, and they help us understand why God would take such decisive and severe action in the world. The simple truth is that man has rebelled against his superior, and the consequence of that rebellion is deserved judgment and doom. While this might not be the most popular or encouraging devotion, it does help illuminate why God would do what he did in the flood, and it also helps us grasp the truth of the gospel. If man would be saved from his sin, someone must have to atone for his transgressions. God's judgment would befall man; it must befall somebody. Point to ponder February fifteenth first John chapter four and verse eight, and Romans chapter six and verse twenty three My guess is that some responses to yesterday's devotion were less than favorable. The common retort to the idea that man deserves God's wrath is grounded in this often repeated, if regularly misunderstood refrain that God is love. To be clear, the Bible does clearly use this phrase, but that doesn't mean that we are free to define what love is supposed to look like based on our own conceptions and opinions. At Smyrna, we absolutely believe that God is love. We worship a loving God, but that does not mean that His love is somehow at war with holiness and justice. Let me try to explain it this way. If God's love is a guide for His responses, how can God love that which is evil and therefore that which harms us? I realize that there is more to the story, that God exists chiefly for His glory, and that His glory is ultimately for our good, but I want to leave that point alone, although it is incredibly important for today to deal with this other, more pressing issue. You see, God's love would seem to demand of Him that He not affirm that which harms His creation. Would a loving parent not punish a child who is careening toward certain death through various irresponsible activities? If my child were to lunge at a venomous snake or threaten to jump out of a third-story window, what would be the loving response? The answer is discipline, or penalty. Furthermore, God's love for His creation demands that those who harm others in His creation not be affirmed in their violence. We all have a category for this, but we seem to think it merits the exception and not the rule. Should a loving God accept and give mercy to Hitler? Would it be loving of him to ignore all of the atrocities committed by the Nazis and the harm that they inflicted upon the Jewish people by accepting them regardless? Should a loving God embrace the serial killer, irrespective of his murderous deeds, or would the lack of penalty and the obvious absence of consequence for the good of those who are horribly impacted not motivate God to do something to bring about justice? My point is that sin has consequences, both temporal and eternal, and that this is not because of some schizophrenic deity. It is the logical and necessary result of a loving God. If God is truly loved, then he must love what is good, and he must hate that which is evil, Because loving that which is evil is to embrace the enemy of good and therefore is not loving at all. The Bible helps us define what is evil in the final verse for the day. Sin is evil. Sin kills. This means that a loving God must judge sin if he is going to walk in holy love. Sin is far worse than many of us dare to think. Its effects are absolutely horrendous, and it ultimately leads to death, temporal and eternal death. And this is not because God is unloving, it is precisely because God's love can only affirm that which is good. That is the only kind of God that we could worship, and thankfully it is exactly the kind of God who is and will always be. Point to Ponder February 16th, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. So, we have attempted to unpack the biblical realities and righteous motivations that would allow us to understand and affirm God's right judgment against mankind. We have said that God's judgment is fitting because man's sin is exhaustive and comprehensively evil, and we have further said that God's judgment is in keeping with His love because His love for His creation and His glory demands that He disdain those things which harm His world and revolt against His right rule as our sovereign. These two things being true, there is one question that arises that we must deal with. If it is true that all men are sinners, and it is, and if it is also true that God's character demands judgment, and it also is, then we must ask how any of us have any hope of escaping judgment. This is a question that is simply not asked enough. The real crux of the matter, the tension in the biblical storyline, is not how God could judge mankind. The real problem is how God could lovingly accept and save any of us. How can God look upon us in our filth and count us righteous, and why would he? The answer is the gospel. First, we see in Ephesians 2 that God sent his Son to die for us. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life and therefore did not deserve the judgment of God. However, he was sent to the world as our substitute, and so he came to die as a suffering sacrifice to take our punishment upon himself. The beauty and wisdom of the gospel is found in this exchange. Christ became sin for us. He suffered under its weight in the wrath that God must pour out on account of our transgression. And having totally absorbed the wrath of God, we can enjoy Christ's righteousness credited or imputed to us by faith alone. The second aspect of the gospel brings us back to 1 John. What would God cause to do this to His only begotten Son? The answer is unfathomable love. It is the love of God towards sinners that is revealed in the gospel of Christ. God loves us, and we know He loves us because He sent His Son to die in our place. The Son suffered, the Father chose to empty the consequences of sin upon the Son, and we enjoy peace with God and adoption into His family as a result. The gospel is why we, as Christians, should react so strongly against the criticism of God that He is somehow unloving towards the world. When a person dies in their sin, they are not dying undeservedly. They are dying because the consequence of their sin and rebellion is right to enforce based on his judgment. Conversely, when a man dies as a justified sinner, he dies receiving unmerited, unending grace from a God who owes us absolutely nothing. So when we see God's judgment, we should remember that he chose only to pour out a portion of what we truly deserve. Even in the case of the flood, God preserves some of his creation and a few people through whom he would eventually send the Savior of the world. To look upon this act as anything but miraculously loving is to misunderstand the depth of our depravity and the absence and abundance of God's love. Point to Ponder, February 17th, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. I am writing this devotion after our Wednesday evening gathering. To be frank, I didn't think I would go in this direction, but in light of the fervent discussion around Genesis 6 this evening, I thought it might be helpful to remind us all. My hope is that this is nothing but a reminder of something that you already knew, but perhaps it is a helpful and instructive call to return to the things that matter most in biblical interpretation and application. Curiosity is a marvelous thing. I enjoyed my time with some of the gentlemen of the fellowship tonight kicking around different theories about the identity of the sons of God and the Nephilim. To be clear, I have spent a great deal of time this week trying to wrap my own head around these two groups as well. There is a place for digging in and even a time that it is okay to offer ideas and speculate, but those activities must be secondary to the real process of biblical interpretation. Sometimes, if we are not careful, we can allow speculative issues or questions that we can't definitively answer to cloud the purposes of the passage, and today's text reminds us what that purpose should be for the disciples of Christ. Notice here that Paul gives a very definitive statement about the reason for the scriptures as he tells us that they were written so that we might have hope. God has revealed himself and his plan in scripture such that we would come to be a hope-filled and grounded, faith-filled family. Now the obvious question is where does hope come from? Let me begin to answer that question by stating as definitively as I possibly can where hope doesn't come from. Hope doesn't come from crackpot theories or half-baked ideas about some tertiary issue in the Scripture. I have yet to meet a person who is filled with hope because they have solved the riddle of the identity of the Nephilim. In fact, Paul warned about this kind of thing when he wrote to Titus saying, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. These kinds of discussions typically arise from Scripture, but they never terminate on Scripture. Instead, they are the product of a mind that is not satisfied with the boundaries of what Scripture reveals, being overwhelmed and overstimulated by the kinds of speculations and foolish disagreements that will not be answered this side of heaven. Why was Titus to avoid such things? Because he was a minister of the gospel, called to preach the Scriptures, and his job was to give his people hope. The point of his standing to preach and his giving counsel was not to get embroiled in things that didn't matter and had no definitive answer. His job was to talk about what was certain and to bring those certainties to bear on the minds of the people such that they would have real, definitive, and lasting hope in all things. This is why God has given us the scripture. God has given us the truth of his word so that we would be grounded and hopeful and that hope springs forth from a person. Point to Ponder February 18th, Luke chapter 24 in verse 27. We spent yesterday talking about the reality that scripture was given for our hope, and today we are going to see that Christian hope is grounded in Christ. I realize that this is common knowledge in our circles, but it does have great bearing on the way that we interpret difficult scriptures like Genesis 6. Today's text is one of the most familiar texts in the Bible for our Smyrna folks. The reason that it gets brought up so often is because of its marvelous instructive nature we see in Luke 24 how Jesus interpreted the Bible, and through his example how we are to go about understanding and teaching the Scriptures as well. Some of you might really wonder how a strange passage like Genesis 6 leads us to Christ. The fact is that there is a very clear connection between Christ and the chapter in question. In fact, I do believe that Genesis 6-8 through may well be one of the passages Jesus utilized to show his unaware disciples his presence in the Old Testament. But how? Well, I don't believe Jesus would have spent a ton of time with his accurate interpretation of the Nephilim. Instead, I believe the point of the passage is to see the exhaustiveness of sin in the world and the hope of God's salvation in a person. In this case, Noah is the one who found favor in the Lord's eyes, and he did so through his obedient faith. Noah set out to build a boat, and that boat would shield his family from the wrath of God. Through one man's obedient faith, his family would be saved. Folks, Christ is the ultimate ark. It is through the faithfulness of Jesus that we even have the opportunity to avoid God's wrath. Just like the boat took the beating of the waves and navigated the tumultuous seas, so Christ's body was broken and bruised for us. Just like Noah and his family were saved from God's wrath by being in the boat, so those who are in Christ have no need to worry that God's wrath would somehow pierce through Jesus' shelter to overwhelm them. And just like the boat brought them safe passage through the storm to a peaceful recreation, so Christ will bring us through death to eternal life in paradise. The point is that in Noah we see a type, or foreshadowing, of Jesus. We see God's character in honoring his promise that he would spare Noah and his family if Noah operated an obedient faith. And we see that God is faithful enough and wise enough to preserve his people through all of the difficult moments in life. This is the point of the flood account and it must be central in our minds if we are going to find the hope that the passage is meant to provide for us. When we read Genesis 6, we should be reminded that sin is pervasive, people are fallen, God saves sinners, and he has ultimately preserved us in the one that he would send to endure sin's penalty in himself while overcoming the grave for all eternity. These truths provide real hope, and therefore this interpretation is very consistent with the overarching purpose of the Bible, according to the Bible.